My name is Jesse Owens. I'm the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Gallatin, Tennessee. And then I also teach at Welch College. I teach theology and some uh, history and Bible and ministry classes there. So thanks for coming today. What I want to talk about today is gospel growth in difficult times, lessons from the early General Baptists. And I'll say, if that title got you here, I feel like we're in good shape. You know, I didn't, uh, I gave a talk on Monday and it was on uh, religious liberty, free will Baptist and religious liberty. But a lot of it was the history of the General Baptist uh, in England and sort of the foundations for religious liberty, which influenced this country as well. Um, but I, f I felt a little bad for those people because they might have come expecting me to talk about something more modern and less historical. But uh, I think if you saw this title, maybe you came uh, with the expectation that it would be historical, uh, at least to some degree. So in the last three to five years, I think we've uh, experienced something particularly jarring in America as Christians. Uh, we've all gone through the pandemic. I'm sure <clears throat> you're tired of hearing about that by now. Uh, we've had to adjust to a variety of changes. Um, we've all had people, I think if you're involved in the local church, uh, that have left the church during that period. Some of them came back and some of them never returned. Um, and there were more than enough conflicts on a variety of fronts. People disagreed about all sorts of things, about how we should handle that. And so there's been this challenge. But I wonder if the greater challenge for us, at least one that occupies uh, much of our mental energy and, uh, and, our, and our time and our thinking, is the moral and religious decline and decay that we see in our nation. And it seems to be occurring at light warp speed. So we're often inundated, if you're on any form of social media, if you watch TV or anything like that, I uh, had the nightly news on the other night and uh, you just kind of wonder, is there any benefit uh, in, do in doing this to myself? Why do I do this before I go to bed? I don't know. Um, but being on those things sort of only exacerbates the problem because we see videos and images and stories about the ongoing sexual revolution in our communities, in our schools, and in our government. And I think with every passing day, it feels as if, and I think it is the case, that conservative Bible-believing Christians are an ever-shrinking minority in the United States. And I think you probably feel that. You probably feel something of that. It, it really doesn't, at this point, matter where you live. There might have been a time in which, if you lived in larger cities, you might have felt that more acutely than if you are in a small town. But I think almost everywhere, because of sort of globalization and because of the internet and the reach of the internet, uh, we all feel that. And not only we, are we sort of feeling like we're an ever-shrinking minority of people in this country, I think we're also increasingly uh, feeling the sense that we're ostracized. Uh, we're treated as if we're ignorant or uneducated, and sometimes even a threat to the peace and well-being of our society. Maybe that's one of the, the major shifts. Uh, we're treated as if conservative Bible-believing Christians, especially on issues of sexuality and gender and all of those things, we feel as if we're ostracized and, and really as if we're, we're a threat, we're a danger uh, to our society. So Christianity, even in the United States, really has over the past, uh, at least over the past few decades, has fallen on hard times. But I would remind you that even though the situation isn't exactly parallel, even though it isn't exactly the same, 
There are many similarities in our own age and that of the early church in the Roman Empire. They were living in a completely pagan society. We're living in a sort of post-Christian society. Uh, but that pagan society was deeply religious, uh, and it hadn't really encountered the gospel yet. Now, we're living in that post-Christian society where many in our country are at least somewhat familiar with the gospel message, with Jesus Christ, but would claim to be maybe not religious. I do think that there is a key parallel between the early church and the Roman Empire in our own day, and that is the issue of religious pluralism. Religious pluralism. Here's what I mean by that. So in the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, it wouldn't have necessarily been an issue if you added to the gods or if you added an additional deity to the pantheon of gods. But what the early church found was that it was a serious problem when Christians stepped in and proclaimed concerning Jesus, as we read in Acts 4.12, that there is no one else and no other name given among heaven or given among men by which we must be saved. I want to talk today about the early English General Baptists, and part of the reason I want to talk about them is because their situation isn't perfectly parallel to ours in the same way that ours isn't exactly parallel to the first century in the early church like we see in the book of Acts or in the epistles or even in the gospels. But the early English General Baptists did find themselves in a precarious position. They found themselves in hard and difficult times. So I want to take a few moments here at the very beginning and talk about some of the hard times that they faced, especially in the 17th century. Now, unlike the early Christians in a pluralistic pagan society, the English General Baptist in the 17th century lived in a self-professed Christian nation. Uh, the England in the 17th century had an established church, the Church of England. They had a national church. It was a national religion. They had an established church. But these Baptists, the early English General Baptists, were persecuted for their faith because they opposed infant baptism and because they rejected the role of civil authorities in the faith and practice of the church. In fact, the early English General Baptists uh, so feared for their lives initially that some of them fled from England and went to Holland for safety. Uh, some of you might have been in the seminar I had the other day, but it's, it's, I think it's important uh, to remind ourselves that in the early years of this nation, um, Baptists were persecuted in this country, in the early colonies, uh, for being Baptists. Uh, there were Congregationalists. Uh, there were some established uh, churches in places like Connecticut. Uh, but Baptists, even in places like Virginia, um, you could think of or look up figures like Obadiah Holmes. Uh, who were persecuted, imprisoned, and even beaten for being Baptists in this country. Sometimes I think we, we forget about that. We only think Star Stripes, 1776, July 4th, um, or uh, the Mayflower. But for our, our forebears in this country, it was difficult to be a Baptist even here uh, in the early years. Let me acquaint you with several things that uh, in, in General Baptist history in the 17th century that I think kind of demonstrates the hard times that they face. And then I want to talk about some principles that I think that we can learn from their experience. So let me acquaint you with a couple of figures and a couple of historical events quickly that I think shows you or gives you a sense of what it is that they experienced, the opposition that they faced. Two men, Thomas Helwes and John Merton, 
Helvis was the first pa pastor of the first Baptist church on English soil. So uh, Thomas Helvis uh, and this group of Baptists, they start the first Baptist church in the English-speaking world, the first one uh, around 1612, just outside of London proper in an area called Spitalfields. That's the first Baptist church on English soil. And Thomas Helvis is the first pastor of that church. Now, Thomas Helwes was imprisoned by King James I, uh, the King James of the King James Bible, um, in the early 1600s, uh, and he actually died there for defending his Baptist beliefs, and he also denounced uh, the Church of England and the king. That probably contributed uh, to the whole thing. Um, John Merton, though, was an associate of Thomas Helwes, and John Merton pastored that same church, became the pastor of that same congregation after Helwes was imprisoned and died. And then Merton, John Merton, in the 1620s was imprisoned himself and likely died there for defending Baptist beliefs and religious liberty. So these two early Baptist pastors in England in the very beginning of the 17th century were persecuted for merely being Baptist and opposing uh, the Church of England and religious persecution. There's an interesting account in the 1660s of some general Baptists who were imprisoned in an English town called Aylesbury just for being Baptists. They were imprisoned there. They, they ultimately sent off for a prominent, wealthy, influential merchant in London by the name of William Kiffin. Uh, Kiffin actually was a Baptist, uh, but, but Kiffin had uh, found a lot of success in, in trade and was a very wealthy merchant. In fact, uh, he loaned a significant amount of money to the English crown, and that actually gave him some favor with him. And he was able to pull some strings, and he was actually able to get these Baptists out of prison in Aylesbury. Now, not that you maybe care about this, I don't know, but I'll give it to you just in case. You might. You can follow it away somewhere. Uh, William Kiffin was actually a particular Baptist, or a Calvinist Baptist, and he actually helped these general Arminian Baptists uh, be released from prison in Aylesbury. That's sort of a fascinating story. In 1661, the English General Baptist published uh, a pamphlet called Zion's Groans for Her Distressed. Zion's Groans for Her Distressed. And in it, they argued against religious persecution. They argued against the imprisonment of people like the Baptist for simply being Baptists. And so in this work, they argued specifically that civil authorities, civil authorities like princes, kings, governors, those sorts of things, did not have the power to punish physically or corporally those that they believed erred spiritually. So if, you're, if you didn't line up with the Church of England and its teachings, and you didn't attend your parish church, and you didn't have your children baptized in the parish church, and you separated from the Church of England, and you tried to, let's say, establish your own church with its own pastor or pastors, then you would find yourself at odds with not only the Church of England, but the state that sponsored the church. I don't know how much you know about the history of England, but uh, you realize when the Church of England is formed uh, with Henry VIII, Henry VIII is the head, not only, he's not only the King of England, he's the head of the Church of England. So there's this conflation of church and state in a way that Baptists did not think was right or biblical or healthy. And it was really to their detriment, and they were persecuted for this. So these General Baptists publish Zion's groans for their distress, and they say, civil authorities do not have the authority to, publish or to, to punish people for spiritual beliefs in matters of faith, 
It's not the responsibility of the state to step into the life of the church and punish people who disagree with him. But when you have this church-state model, this national church model, that's inevitably what had happened all through the Middle Ages uh, and even in through the Reformation, and the Baptists pushed back against that. These same group of Baptists, so that work was published in 1661. In 1660, they published a Confession of Faith. And the Confession of Faith was called a Brief Confession, or sometimes it's called a Standard Confession. Uh, these Baptists, um, in 1660, Charles II had come to the throne of England. There's actually a period of time in the 1640s and 1650s when England was without a king. Uh, the reason that England was without a king is because they, they, they killed him. <laughs> uh, Charles, the, Charles I was actually uh, put to death, uh, which is called regicide, the, the killing of the king. And, uh, and you have a period of time in which England is, uh, has Oliver Cromwell ruling uh, essentially as a, as a protector, and the protectorate is what it's called. That period in between the two kings, Charles I, who they kill, and Charles II is called the interregnum, the time in between the kings. But when Charles II comes to the throne, the Baptists, who have experienced a bit of religious freedom during this time of Oliver Cromwell, are afraid that what they experienced before with Charles I is about to come at them again. And so they put together this confession of faith where they spell out their beliefs about what they think the Bible teaches on important doctrines. And they hand deliver this to the court of Charles II, um, which is something to, to think about in and of itself. So they were afraid what would come their way, but then they hand deliver this confession of faith. They're saying, here's what we think the Bible teaches on these key doctrines. But I'm not gonna rehearse those doctrines, although I do wanna say something about confessionalism in a bit. But I want you to listen to uh, what they said at the end of that confession of faith. So think about hand delivering this to the court of Charles II, being afraid that your life might be on the line. And here's what they say. In the belief and practice of these things, it being the good old apostolic way, our souls have found that rest and soul peace which the world knows not and which they cannot take from us. Of whom then should we be afraid? God has become our strength, our light, our salvation. Therefore, we are resolved through grace to seal the truth of these things, what they've written in the confession, in a way of suffering persecution, not only to the loss of our goods, freedoms, or liberties, but with our lives also, if called thereunto. Now, I recount just briefly here some of these sufferings, some of the persecution of the English General Baptist in England in the 17th century, just to give you a sense that they are a people well acquainted with persecution for their faith. These people that I'm gonna give you some principles from that I think we can learn from, these people knew difficult times. They knew hard times. Now again, they're living in a, in a, in a nation that claims to be a Christian nation and has a national church, but they're, they're persecuted for basically affirming what they believe the Bible teaches about baptism, the nature of the church, the ordination of ministers, all of these things. They experienced hard times. And I want you to, to get a sense from the outset here that it wasn't easy for them to minister in these times. Uh, I, I like to say sometimes when, when, when preaching, uh, I think sometimes we get, if we're not careful, uh, we, maybe we get the world of flannel graph in our minds, and we think that you know, back in Bible times, in Bible land, everyone sort of believed whatever. Uh, sometimes I, I wonder if we don't get 
earlier eras and previous centuries. Even, even like I was saying to you earlier, Baptists were persecuted in this country for being Baptist. Sometimes I think we, we sort of get these idealistic ideas in our minds about what it was like for pilgrims and the Mayflower and all of that, and we forget some of these details. But these, these Baptists experienced persecution for the faith, and they ministered in very difficult times, very hard times. And I think when we reflect on some of the key things that they did as they ministered, as they evangelized, as they planted new churches during this era, during this difficult time and the place in which they lived, I think we will be helped in our own day. So I want to give you some principles that I think we can learn from these early English General Baptists that would aid us in gospel growth, gospel growth. So let me just say something briefly about what is gospel growth. What is it that we're talking about? By gospel growth, I'm really focusing primarily on the health of churches, the health of churches. And so I mean people growing in the faith, growing in obedience, growing in Christ-likeness. And I think that does often lead to numerical growth. So we don't have to pit the growth of the church numerically against the growth of the church spiritually. I think those things go hand in hand. Now, if we have spiritual health and growth, but we don't have numerical growth, sometimes maybe providentially there are things that are keeping that from happening, but maybe we ought to assess the spiritual health. I mean, there, there are a variety of ways of coming at this. So these English General Baptists experienced numerical growth in the 17th century. In fact, they went from that church pastored by Thomas Helwes and then John Merton in 1612 to hundreds of churches throughout England by the end of the century, which really is remarkable when you consider the great deal of suffering that they experienced during that time. So they experience opposition, but they also have numerical growth through their evangelistic efforts. But what I want to say to you is that their primary focus, their primary focus was not really on numerical growth per se. That came and I think they cared about it. But their primary focus was on fulfilling those key elements of the Great Commission, certainly of evangelism and of making disciples. But they also focused on maintaining faithfulness to the Bible or biblical doctrine. And they also focused on things like preaching the Word and catechizing their children and administering the ordinances and remaining faithful again to biblical doctrine even in the face of persecution. So that's what I want to focus on. How can we have gospel growth, which I think ultimately will lead uh, to numerical growth? So I want to give you some principles that I think that we can learn from them. The first thing that I want us to focus on is their commitment to biblical ecclesiology. Biblical ecclesiology. You, you may not be familiar with that word, maybe some of you are, uh, in the New Testament, uh, we have the word ecclesia, right, in reference to uh, the church. So we're thinking about ecclesiology. Ecclesiology really is thinking about the structure and nature and formation of the church. That's what it's about. So they had a biblical view of the church. That's what they were concerned about. One of the primary reasons that Baptists came into existence, the reason that we even have Baptists at all today, is because they had a distinctly Baptist view of the church. They had a distinctly Baptist, I think they would say biblical, view of ecclesiology. Now, in the early 17th century, uh, essentially no one, no one in the English-speaking world was baptizing believers. 
uh, almost everyone was baptizing infants. Uh, the Presbyterians were baptizing infants, the Congregationalists were baptizing infants, uh, the Roman Catholics are baptizing infants, obviously in the Church of England they're baptizing infants. Uh, obviously if you think about uh, Calvin and Luther and, and, and even the, the magisterial reformers like, like, like the men I've mentioned, they're baptizing infants. Almost no one in the English-speaking world is baptizing believers. But these Baptists, I think in part through their contact with the Anabaptists in Holland, came to the conviction that the Bible taught that baptism was for believers and that the church, the gathered church, was a believer's church. Uh, so within the Church of England, uh, you get it in, in the American context as well, you, you have the baptism of infants and they're sort of included in the covenant community of the church. They're, they're brought into the church. And uh, Baptists said, you know, it's, it's fine to obviously have the children of believers and, and whatnot in the church, but they're not members of the church. So they believed in a believer's church. By that, I mean only baptized believers were to be members of the church. Now, I would assume that if you're at the National Association of Free Will Baptists, you share these basic uh, views of things. But, uh, on, on, on regenerate church membership and baptism, but I think we should give some thought to just how costly these beliefs were for the General Baptists. Their possessions were confiscated. Some were imprisoned or died in jail, thinking about Helwes and Merton and others. Some were beaten. They're socially ostracized. They couldn't graduate from universities like Oxford and Cambridge, and I don't want you to get it in your mind like, well, I don't know if they could have gotten into Oxford and Cambridge. Those were the options. Those were the universities in England. So it's, it's, not, it's not as if like, you know, it's not like the Ivy Leagues. Uh, these are the universities. Um, and they couldn't attend those because they were separated from the Church of England, so they couldn't get an education. They couldn't rise to the higher social strata. And they endured all of these things because they thought the Bible taught a distinctly Baptist ecclesiology, a distinctly Baptist view of the church. I don't know that, I don't know that we give the same sort of thought to ecclesiology or the structure or nature of the church in our own day. Um, I don't know that we give it as, as much thought as they did of the nature of the church, the structure of the church, the administration of the ordinances uh, that these early Baptists gave thought to. Uh, sometimes I wonder if we, although we're Baptists and, and free will Baptists, I wonder if we wouldn't say, well, I don't know if the Bible teaches a particular ecclesiology, you know, or how we should structure the church, you know. Uh, sometimes people act as if that's the, the case. These early Baptists are, are thinking about the nature of the church. They're being imprisoned, fined, beaten for their view of the church and of baptism. And I, don't, I don't know if we, we give that as much thought as, as they did uh, on biblical ecclesiology. Let me read to you a couple of sections from a couple of General Baptist Confessions of Faith from the 17th century that I think give you a, a sense of how they were thinking about these things. Now, some of this is kind of, uh, some of this will sound technical and nuanced, uh, which is actually its own point that's instructive, and I'm, I'll try to highlight that in a second. And then some of it, I, I hope, is, though not entertaining and funny in their time, I hope it's funny maybe in our time. You'll see what I mean in just a moment. Okay, so here's what the Standard Confession of 1660 says about the church. The right and only way of gathering churches according to Christ's appointment in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is first to teach or preach the gospel, Mark 16, 16, to the sons and daughters of men and then to baptize. That is in English to dip. 
in the name of the Father and Son uh, and Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus Christ, such only of them as profess repentance towards God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. And as for all such who preach not this doctrine, but instead thereof that scriptureless thing of sprinkling infants, falsely called baptism, whereby the pure word of God is made of no effect, and the New Testament way of bringing in members into the church by regeneration is cast out. When as the bondwoman and her son, that is to say the Old Testament way of bringing in children into the church, by generation is cast out, as says Scripture, all such we utterly deny, for as much as we are commanded to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather to reprove them. In other words, they think that if the, if the foundation of a church is the baptism of infants, they were not convinced that this was a true biblical foundation for gathering a church. That's why they left the Church of England. In fact, um, they're, uh, they're separatists in that they separate from the Church of England, but there are other separatists who leave the Church of England and actually maintain infant baptism. And they critique them because they say, you've left the Church of England, but you've actually count the foundation of the Church of England or of an established church, infant baptism, intact. You have, you're gathering churches the wrong way. It's through the proclamation of the gospel and repentance and faith and then baptism. That's the Great Commission, right? That's, that's how it works. That's how it flows. And so they're saying this is the right way of gathering churches, teaching, preaching, repentance, faith, baptizing believers. That's how we bring people into the church. All right, so this is Helwes' Declaration of Faith uh, from 1611. I'll read you a couple of articles from that. He says... That the Church of Christ is a company of faithful people, separated from the world by the Word and Spirit of God, being knit unto the Lord and to one another by baptism, upon their confession of faith and sins. And then he says, That though in respect of Christ the Church be one, yet it consists of diverse particular congregations, even as, even so, uh, many as there shall be in the world, every of which congregation, though they be but two or three, have Christ given them, with all the means of their salvation, are the body of Christ and a whole church. All therefore may and ought, when they are come together to pray, to prophesy, to break bread, and minister in all the holy ordinances, listen to this, although as yet they have no officers, uh, ministers, deacons, or that their officers be in prison, sick, or by any other means hindered from the church. So basically what they're saying is it isn't a bishop or an archbishop or some other figure that makes the church the church. It's the gathered people of God who have repented and believed and been baptized and come together. In fact, they see the foundation of the church actually is preceding a pastor. You have to have a church in order to call a pastor. Now, I don't want to delve into that, but I, I, you probably should let that stew a little bit in your mind uh, to think about how things, uh, how Baptist ecclesiology functions. When times are really hard, when times are really hard, I, I think that we think the best we can do is sort of just keep our heads above water, right? It's just kind of keep things afloat, kind of maintain the status quo and just hope that we kind of keep things rolling. We're tempted to say things like, and I've heard people say, we just need to keep the main thing the main thing. Or downplay significant things like biblical ecclesiology, Baptist ecclesiology, a Baptist understanding of the church. And if we don't, if we focus on things like that, if we focus on Baptist ecclesiology, then we're just sort of polishing the brass on a sinking Titanic. I, I, 
you've probably heard people say stuff like that. I think it's well intended, uh, but I, I don't think it's, it's good or helpful. Here's what I want you to see as we think about biblical ecclesiology. In these early English General Baptists, what they cared about, even in difficult times, were things like this. They thought they mattered. When they're being imprisoned and beaten and their, their goods are being confiscated, they write out what they believe in Confessions of Faith. And I'll say something about Confessions in just a moment. They deliver it to Charles II and they say, hey, here's what we believe. We've written it out. Here are the scripture references. And if this cost us our goods or our lives, then so be it. In hard times, they cared about the nature and structure of the church. They didn't lower the bar or just sort of give up in order to keep things afloat. They focused on what they thought really mattered. And even the structure of the church mattered to them. And I think it ought to matter to us as well. Second, not only biblical ecclesiology, they also cared even in hard times about biblical worship. Biblical worship. One of the main reasons that General Baptists cared so much about biblical ecclesiology was because they thought there was a direct connection between things like baptism and the nature and the structure of the church and worship, biblical worship. So their focus uh, in worship was on what we might call the ordinary means of grace. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. But here's all I really mean by that. Their focus was on the things that they believed God had ordained to be done in worship. So at the center of their worship is Scripture. The center of their worship is the Word. So they would preach the Word, and they would sing the Word, and they would pray the Word, and they would partake of the ordinances. And all of these things... And these early Baptists believed that God had given these insights, these ordinances, these commands, things like the public reading of Scripture, which we find uh, in the epistles being commended. They believed that these instructions were given by God. And the Bible had something to say not only about how the church ought to be structured and gathered, but also had something to say about how we were to worship, how God ought to be worshipped. Without getting into the nitty-gritty or maybe divulging all of my views on worship, if we just sort of stay at a 30,000-foot level here, I think that what we can learn from the English General Baptists is that they realized that worship wasn't about them. It wasn't about them. And I know that in, in, in sort of sentiment, we would all say that we agree with that, and I hope we, hope we do. But they realized that worship was a Godward thing. There are impacts, right? We see this in the epistles and Colossians and a variety of places. Our worship has something to do with one another. There, there is a horizontal component, but it is, I think, first and foremost, vertical, and there are horizontal implications. But what these General Baptists seem to have constantly been asking and, and reflecting on was not what they wanted in worship or not what they thought would be appealing in worship, but they were constantly assessing what they could infer from the Bible about how God wanted to be worshipped. I think it's just a good principle for us to keep in mind as it relates to worship. It is God we are worshipping, and the question we ought to be asking is, how does God desire to be worshipped? Look at that throughout the Old Testament, right? That's the thing that comes up. There, that's the thing that God constantly says. The heart matters, but He's prescribed certain ways. Um, even in Hebrews, right, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And having received that kingdom, then we should come to God with a sense of reverence and awe. Why? Because 
pointing even back to his character in the Old Testament, our God is a consuming fire. When we approach God in worship, we need to be asking not, is it, not what is it that appeals to us, but how is it that God has prescribed that we ought to be worship, that we ought to worship him? So their worship is distinctly God-centered and word-centered. They also cared about confessionalism. Confessionalism. Now, I've said a little bit about confessionalism already, but from the earliest days, Baptists were a confessional people. Sometimes you hear that phrase, and I think it comes from uh, the Church of Christ movement, probably in the 1840s and 50s and 60s and forward. Uh, no creed but the Bible. Well, let, let, me, let me help you this morning. Um, this after, well, it's still morning. Uh, Baptists were not a no creed but the Bible people. <laughs> that, that might be what... That might be what churches of Christ have taught, and maybe over time we've embraced something of that. But they were a confessional people. They wrote out confessions of faith. I've already told you in 1611, the first Baptist pastor, Thomas Hellas, writes out a confession of faith and spells out what he thinks the Bible teaches on key biblical doctrines. You find it in the 1650s. You find it in the 1660s and the 1670s. The earliest people in this country uh, who were connected with these general Baptists in the 1700s used confessions of faith from those people in England. Baptists have been a confessional people. It's only in the past probably century or so that we have been kind of a uh, less than confessional people. But historically, Baptists have spelled out their beliefs on key biblical doctrines. They have written them down in confessions of faith. They've actually gone so far as in the 17th century in particular, but beyond that too, to have their ministers subscribe to those confessions. And by subscribe, I mean write their names, sign their names in affirming those confessions of faith. Baptists were a confessional people, even when it was difficult. So think about them again, hand-delivering that confession of faith to Charles II, having no idea what that would mean for them. They could have just said, you know, they could have just hidden out, but they wrote down what they believed and they hand-delivered it. They're a confessional people. Um, it's sort of intriguing when we think that the English General Baptists wrote down and actually published through the printing press uh, confessions of faith. They spelled out what they believed that the Bible taught on important doctrines, and they even wrote down those proof texts where they thought they could be found and defended in Scripture. So they were open about their doctrinal convictions and beliefs, even when it was costly to them. But, but I, I'm afraid that the spirit of our own age in the 21st century is to sort of downplay doctrine, to downplay doctrinal beliefs, uh, and certainly to downplay doctrinal distinctives. That is things that may be unique, uh, not, not maybe to Free Baptists like we're the only people who do them, but, but are somewhat unique to us compared to, to maybe some other denominations, uh, things like the washing of the saints' feet or maybe even the possibility of apostasy for believers. Um, they, they wrote these things down. Uh, by the way, Helwes affirmed the possibility of, of apostasy, as did uh, the 1660 Confession. They did these things when it might cost them their lives. We downplay doctrine and confessions and doctrinal distinctives really when we kind of have nothing to lose. So think about that too. Think about the way in which uh, the, we operate sometimes is different when we really have nothing to lose. When people visit the church that I pastor, they'll often ask me, and if you pastor, I bet you've had the same experience, they'll ask what makes Free Will Baptist different or what makes Free Will Baptist unique or different from Southern Baptist. That's probably the one I get the most. And, uh, or they'll ask me uh, to explain why we wash feet. 
or how free will Baptist uh, views on perseverance are different than maybe eternal security. And I think if you've ever been asked those questions by people, then you might have felt a certain temptation to kind of brush by it or maybe downplay it a little bit, uh, or maybe to shy away from the question. I, I don't know, maybe, you, maybe you've never felt that. Um, but what I've often found is that people who come from other denominations are actually often quite open to our doctrinal distinctives, even things like uh, the washing of the saints' feet, even things like the possibility of apostasy. In fact, I've even had multiple people in multiple families, some of which have joined our church from other denominations, who find the biblical case for things like the washing of the saints' feet and the possibility of apostasy when explained to them in a faithful way, they found them to be biblically compelling. They come to the conclusion that they believe these things too. This has happened to me on multiple occasions, uh, really just within the past few years. Even within the last couple of years, I've explained our views on perseverance, and I've had people come from uh, non-denominational churches, some from other denominations, some from even Southern Baptist churches, and they would say, after I would explain our views on the possibility of apostasy, they would say, that's practically what I believe, that people can indeed walk away uh, from the faith. Now, to be certain, not everyone. Uh, has responded in that way. Um, I had a lady one time uh, who had moved to the area from uh, California, and she was a, had been a member of John MacArthur's church, and uh, she she was less excited maybe about uh, some of those things than uh, than than some others. But here's all I'm really saying. All I'm really saying is that we need to be guided by our faith and practice, by our confession of faith, by the treatise. We should expect that our ministers and teachers in our church should teach in accordance with it. And I don't mean that we need to beat people over the head with it, but I do think that that should be the expectation, that we're a confessional people. This, these are our beliefs. And we shouldn't shy away from our distinctives even when we're tempted to do so. Now, I've mentioned things like washing of the saints' feet and the possibility of apostasy, but those are kind of intramural uh, debates. Uh, but it's also true on things like gender and sexuality as well. Uh, we are a confessional people. Next, the General Baptists, I think we can learn something from them about gospel growth in difficult times on their approach to catechesis. Um, if you're writing these down, that's C-A-T-E-C-H-E-S-I-S, -E catechesis. How many of you know what catechesis is or know what a catechism is? Does anybody have any? Okay, some, some awareness. Okay. Catechesis is really quite simple. It's really quite simple. It's taking a biblical doctrine and setting it in the form of a question and then an answer. That's really all it is. Taking a Bible doctrine and setting it in the form of a, que of a question and answer. I'll give you an example. One of the most well-known Protestant catechisms is the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end? What is the chief purpose of man? That's the question. And the answer given is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Oftentimes, catechisms and catechesis are aimed at children and the instruction of children, and that's how the Westminster Shorter Catechism would have often been used. But the General Baptists did this too, and other Calvinist Baptists did the same thing. In 1687, one of the most significant General Baptist theologians of the 17th century, a man by the name of Thomas Grantham, published a work called St. Paul's Catechism, St. Paul's Catechism. 
And in it, he followed the standard format of questions or of catechisms. He put this document together with questions and answers on key doctrinal issues, foundational doctrinal issues, and doctrinal distinctives. And he did it for the families of General Baptist in churches throughout England. And they were to use it in their homes. Uh, they might have used them in their churches as well. In our day, I think catechesis or the use of catechisms in the instruction of children is something that we have neglected, something that we've neglected. Children do so well, I think, with things like this question and answer format, posing a doctrinal question to them and then giving them the answer that they can memorize and respond to. Now, I am very thankful that Dr. Moody has put together uh, Paul Harrison, who pastored Cross Timbers, maybe you're familiar with him for a significant period of time, he pastors in Alabama now, put together a catechism, and, uh, and Dr. Moody has made that catechism available as the Free Will Baptist Catechism that you can find on nafwb.org. It's in a variety of printable formats, and it's exactly this. It's a question, a doctrinal question, and then an answer to that question, and there are biblical texts that support that answer. So if I want to know where does the Bible teach this thing, well, I go to those places, and I see them there. Now, some of the questions are longer, like what are the books of the Old Testament? Uh, of course, those are very good things for, for children to learn. But when I say, I'm going to say something in just a second about how I think this can be done and how they can be used. Keep that in mind, uh, that some of the, the questions and answers are, are long. Are, are most of you familiar with the Free Will Baptist Catechism? Have you seen that? It's been made available. If you're not, go on nafwb.org, and there's a place there uh, where you can find it. Uh, but I would recommend that you think about how you can incorporate that into the life of your church. And I want to give you just a few brief ideas on how I think you can do that. Here, here are some ideas. Um, you could print them in your bulletin or whatever you call it. You could have question one and then answer one. If you're thinking, well, we've got three pages of, of prayer requests. And, you know, maybe, maybe this might be a way that some of the ones that have been on there for 30 years, you might could, you know, I don't know. Um, but print them in your bulletin, uh, question one, answer one, for people to see and maybe for them to use. Now, I actually know some people who have done this um, where not only they print them in the bulletin, but they might actually read them aloud at some point in their worship service. Um, now, some people are in churches might be intimidated by this. You're not going to say, okay, today we're going to look at question three of the Free Will Baptist Catechism. You might do that if you want, if you think that works for your setting. I've heard some people say things like, we're going to go through this series of foundational Christian truths, these key Christian truths. We're going to look at the first one today, and you give the question and the answer. That's one way you might do it. Uh, you might put it in the bulletin or even read it aloud. What about using it in your Sunday school? especially your children's Sunday school or, or other small group settings that you have for your children. Maybe you have a segment of a class or children's church or something like that where you read the question and you have the children try to memorize the answer. They say it back to you. Maybe you give them some time to look over it. Um, if you have a TV in there or something, it might be that you could put it on the screen or if you, you could print it out in advance and you could distribute it to them. Maybe you have little note cards and they can have it there in front of them. But maybe there's a segment of class and you send it home with them and they try to memorize it in the same way that they would memorize Bible verses. Here are not only the Bible verses, but what we think these verses actually teach. So we want to hide God's Word in our hearts, but we also want them to have biblical doctrine too. What is it that we think these passages teach? 
So if you did this in a class, you might do one question and answer for multiple weeks or a whole month, right? We're not in a rush. <laughs> if you did it for a whole month, you'd only get through 12 questions in a year, but that would be okay. If you did one every two weeks, right, then you would get through 26 of them in a year. But this is a way that you could, you could work these into your classes. Or maybe you print out the catechisms and you give them to the families in your church to use at home. And maybe a couple of nights a week, families could go over the question and the answer for multiple nights or even multiple weeks. In fact, I think parents could even use the catechism as like a family devotional or study time. So go to those biblical texts and read those texts that are provided there and say these texts teach this or this, this biblical doctrine is drawn from these passages so they can aid in, uh, in the process. And by the way, I think when you equip people in those sorts of ways, then it, it certainly helps them get a long ways down the road in actually doing these things. Um, there are a host of ways, though, of using this sort of tool of doing, of catechizing or doing catechesis or using the catechism. But I think we need to be getting biblical doctrine into the hearts and minds of our kids. And catechesis is a time-tested, proven way of doing that. So I teach 18 to 22-year-olds um, and, uh, and, and, and biblical awareness and of doctrine and really just of the stories of the Bible even is really low. And we, we can't just be entertaining these kids. We need to be taking these things very seriously. Finally, the English General Baptists, even in difficult times, were very concerned about evangelism. So I told you they're concerned about gospel growth, that is growth in faith and Christ-likeness and holiness and obedience. But they're also concerned about evangelism and planting new churches. In fact, they would send out people that they called messengers who were something like evangelists to evangelize different regions, to gather believers, to oversee the establishment of new churches, to aid the pastors of those congregations. So in difficult times, when it's difficult to just live and worship as a Baptist in this period, these Baptists were going out and evangelizing and starting new churches throughout England. Then these churches would follow the biblical pattern of biblical ecclesiology, of catechesis, of confessionalism, and biblical worship that I've kind of laid out above. It really maybe the, the primary takeaways, you think about all of these different things that we've talked about, maybe the primary takeaway from this is the example that we see of faithfulness, faithfulness in difficult times. Um, if we're going to see our churches healthy, if we're going to see our churches grow numerically, it's going to require a commitment. And it's going to require a commitment in increasingly difficult times in this country. And, it, and it's not just through the being faithful to preach what the Bible says about X, Y, or Z. Those things, uh, that, that's the key instruction format of the church. But I think these other things that we've maybe lost sight of that are within Baptist history, within the Baptist tradition, uh, we might regain as well. But it's going to take a faithful commitment uh, to, to recover these things.